TalkLine Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community. Welcome to the podcast. You're listening to TalkLine with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to the program, Mom. Zev Brenner and T.M. Garra joins us. He was born as Achim Schmidt in Germany. He was raised in a small town. And around the age of 13, he started flirting with white nationalist groups in Germany, became radicalized, became a white supremacist. He founded a series of racist skinheads bands, began with the Celtic Moon, Wolf Strudel. He later became a member of the German Ku Klux Klan. He formed his own KK group. He was a grand wizard. He was a Nazi. Uh, he left the white supremacist movement in 2002. He's worked with the Wiesenthal Center. He's in the process of converting to Judaism. So, T.M. Garrett, thank you for joining us again. Thank you for having me again. I can remember vividly being on the show last time in person in the studio before COVID. Right. It was a while back. But since that time, you were in the process of converting to Judaism. And before I get to that, just share with our audience, you grew up in Germany. What do you think about Jews? How do you get attracted to these white hate groups, what were you doing for them? Well, first of all, I wasn't born into an environment like that. Um, my parents, my family was not anti-Semitic. They weren't Holocaust deniers or anything. Even though you have to realize I was born 30 years after the liberation of Auschwitz. And when I was 13 years old, when I started flirting with the topic that was only 43 years after the liberation of Auschwitz, so that's a very short amount of time which means a lot of people who have been around at the time were still alive in Germany. Germans who maybe have been involved in the Holocaust, in atrocities, in crimes, and so on. That was a big problem for a lot of teenagers, a lot of German teenagers, because we learned about the Holocaust at the age of 13 in history class, and Germany has done a really good job making up for it and, and, and Holocaust education and everything. So we learned the Nazis were the bad guys. We learned the Holocaust did happen. We learned all that. And then you have to think about your grandparents. Look, my great-grandmother was born in 1896. My grandmother was born in 1920. My father was born in 1941. And... Then you have to ask yourself the question, have my grandparents been involved in any of these atrocities? That's not a question anybody wants to ask themselves. It's people you love, you know, so you shove it away. That's a problem you, you don't know how to address. Shove it away. I met people that had the courage to ask their grandparents, hey, have you been involved? I didn't have the courage. I didn't know what to say. Most of my classmates didn't have the courage what to say. But... At the same age, 13-year-old boys, what happens when boys are 13? They get in puberty. They discover the masculinity. They want to be the bad boy. And this is when we learned about this topic and, and got presented with the worst thing in Germany that you could pick and run with uh, to get the ultimate attention. And that's what we did. So we started uh, cracking Holocaust jokes and racist jokes, anti-Semitic jokes. And I say nowadays very unintentionally because it was not for the intention to hate anybody, the intention was to get attention. Um, 
But I was labeled as a Nazi in school really quick. Like, in a box, you know, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, looks like a duck, must be a duck, right? And don't get me wrong, and for the audience too, I did something very anti-Semitic when I was a teenager, just cracking these jokes. I get it. What anti-Semitic thing did you do? At the, at the time, it was only cracking jokes. It was really but bad jokes about, about Jews and the Holocaust getting murdered and so on. Um... But it was again for for the for the for the sake of attention, and I got labeled as the Nazi kid in school really quick, which I didn't understand because we made fun of Hitler too. Uh, it was at that time you couldn't make fun of Hitler either because it was way too serious. Everybody would say this is a really serious time in history. We were not making fun of any of it, including Hitler. Uh, a little bit like. <laughs> You cannot make make fun of the devil in a in a Baptist church here in the U.S. You can, just can't do it. You know um, that has changed thanks to actually Jewish filmmakers. They introduced actually that topic that you must actually make make fun of somebody like Hitler. But anyway, so I started wearing the label. I didn't like it first, so I I started adapting the label as the Nazi kid. And somebody gave me a cassette tape with hate music, and I picked that topic. It was still only about provoking. Two years later, I got recruited by a neo-Nazi party. This is when the ideology kicked in after two or three years. That's how long it took from just provoking to the ideology. It was Germany first. The immigrants are taking over the country. The communists want to swap out the population. And they also had a solution for my problem with the grandparents. There were Holocaust deniers. So they said... The Holocaust never happened, which means your parents, there's no possibility your grandparents were involved in anything. And they also claim Germany did not start World War II. They just defended themselves. And all of a sudden, your grandparents could be heroes. That fits much better in the, for, for the 13, for 15 year old who, who doesn't know, who doesn't want to ask his grandparents if they were criminals. Problem solved. Um, and I started believing that. And that's how I got really sucked in. I became a Holocaust denier. But very important to understand, I was not the full-blown anti-Semite yet because at the time, all the enemies were kind of sorted in at the, at the same level. Black people, Jews, communists, wh whoever it was that we hated, it was all the same level. There was none above the other. And that changed drastically in 1998 with the internet. Internet. The internet popped up and everybody had a computer, everybody had IRC chats, and you could talk to people all across the world. And they, look, until then I thought Germany is under attack and we have to save, save Germany. Then all of a sudden you had all these people telling me they had the same problems in their country. And they said, it's the white race that's under attack. And I was like, wow, so there's something bigger. I became white supremacist. I felt like I have to, to save the white race, but from whom? And they told me, read the one book. And again, Germany has done a great job making up for that and banning like literature that glorifies the Nazis. And you couldn't get a lot of literature because it was banned. You would go to prison. But the internet changed it. One mouse click and you had it. And it was the protocols of the elders of Zion they gave me to read. And for anybody who's listening who doesn't know what that is, I call it what you know today as fake news, made up in Russia in 1905 by Russian anti-Zionists and uh, anti-Semites to stir hate against Jews. And this presented the Jewish people as uh, 
there's a conspiracy how they want to take over the world with the money and they're behind the media and the white race are the only people who stand between the Jewish conspir- conspiracy and world domination. And I, it made me feel I could be a superhero defending actually my people and actually the whole world from this overpowerful enemy. And this was 10 years into the movement. It took 10 years to get to the point where I was the full-blown anti-Semite. And this was about the same time when I also joined the German KKK group and took over as the leader um, for that German group and also a couple of European countries. That was the height of that career and that movement and almost already the end. Now, as Grand Wizard of the KKK, did you engage in any anti-Semitic attacks on Jews? Um, not physically, because in Germany, unfortunately, historically, we know there are not many Jews. So the thing is, I never had met a Jewish person in Germany at the time. You know, in I don't know if you remember that when I was on your show, we were there with Michael Cohn from the Simon Wiesenthal Center and Rabbi uh, Hopkowitz. And I told you all we learned in history, actually in elementary school, we had this picture of of Jews with a black hat and a black coat at the temple while praying, and we learned actually uh, uh, at least the first verse of uh, Shalom Alechem. And I remember how excited Rabbi Hapkowitz was that this really was happening. And I can't remember the tune we learned; it must have been a different one that I learned now in, in my synagogue. But it's interesting, and it even contains my 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 born name, you know, but we will we'll come to that in a little bit. So I, I didn't have any idea about Jews. I All I knew was they all wear black and they all eat gefilte fish all day long. <laughs> this was, yeah, you're laughing, but this is how do normal, normal non-Jews know how Jews look like? And I have a funny story about that later too, how I caught myself looking, <laughs> looking Jewish. But Therefore, there was not physical attacks, but there were attacks that were uh, of ideology, like ideology. I put, unfortunately, propaganda out in my function as the leader. It was not Grand Wizard. I was actually Grand Dragon for the for the realm of Germany and then the imperial representative for the whole continent of Europe. And I uh, created a doctrine based on the Christian identity, which uh, really um, classifies the Jews as the seed of Satan and white people as the true Israelites, as the ten lost tribes. Therefore, white people were the only true Israelites with a true bloodline to God and what we know today as Jews were not. And I put this out. I tried to convince people of that, you know, these famous Bible quotes that all these uh, Christian fundamentalists use, the Jews are the synagogue, uh, synagogue of Satan, and whatever they pull out out of the Christian Bible. I used the same stuff, and I put it out there, and I, I stirred hate bad in music. I recorded music, unfortunately, uh, partly from... And this is also weird. I was a Holocaust denier, but there's no ho- uniform Holocaust denial in the movement. Some people, they pick and choose whenever it's, it fits in. Sometimes they accept it happened and they glorify it and say, we have to kill more next time. And when it doesn't fit in, then they deny it, but say, well, it should have happened, and next time we have to do it right. This is always the same thing. And I did the same thing. Depending where it fit in, I was glorifying it or denying it. 
but always with the with the message we, next time we have to do it right this is the enemy and we have to exterminate the enemy this is how far I went to put that ideology out are um, they still singing your songs at the time we completely rejected are they still singing your anti-Semitic the songs? Again, Are they still singing some of your anti-Semitic songs in Germany? You, you still can. You still they were in German and in English, and you still can get it. It's some some songs are even streamed on Spotify. The ones that are not as radical. There's websites in that movement where you can download the illegal stuff. It's unfortunately still there, and there's nothing you can do because neo Nazis don't care about copyrights. Um, and in this movement, it's not about copyrights anyway. If you record music in a movement, you give all rights away. It's like it belongs to everybody in the movement. They know what they're doing because if you get out, then you can't prevent them from using your music. And this is unfortunately still there. I have created monsters in this movement that are still there. People that are in leading functions that are still there that I know I have no influence over them. They probably will die with the ideology. And that is some something I have to deal with with a conscience and with this. This is something I have to take to bed at night and have to sometimes a hard time a hard time to sleep thinking about that. So what happened? Here you are. You hate Jews with a passion. You have this anti-Semitic music that you're singing. You're heading a KKK group. You're around with Nazis. So what happened? Where you? transform yourself from being a hater to now you're on the road to becoming a Jew. What what took place? <laughs> what transpired? I'm trying to make a long story short. Um, first, it was not anybody out of the Jewish community, but it could have been. Again, Germany, at that time, there were not many Jews. Fortunately, the Jewish community in Germany is growing, and I love it. It's really getting richer. But at the time, not. Um, it was actually a Another person of a minority group I once hated. It was a, a Muslim. What actually, actually happened, because the police tried to push me out of the group. They threatened me with prison. And at the time, they really tried hard because we tried to infiltrate society. We had police members, as, uh, police officers as members. We had business people as members. And I think the authorities got a little bit scared and tried really to push hard, how can we dissolve the group? And the solution was, let's get rid of rid of the leader. That was me. So they visited us, us all, and uh, uh, like the state police came to the, to the members, and the federal police came to me and threatened me that I would go to prison if one of my members would commit a violent crime. And I was like, well, we teach our members not to commit violent crimes, so we're good with the good ones completely unlogic because or illogical because if we would have been the hippies there would have been no reason to tell the members not to commit violent crimes right <laughs> so if you if you have to tell your members not to commit a violent crime then there's something wrong with your message but i didn't see that yet but i was scared to death i was scared to go to prison i had three kids at the time i was like i don't want to go to prison i picked up the phone i retired from my uh, uh, leadership role and even appointed a successor and told them you, ho you hold a meeting next year and appoint or vote actually for a new leader, I'm gone. It's too hot right now. And sometimes they let you go because they knew they, they had to visit too from the, from the police. And 
I decided to move away about 100 miles because I was still too close to the people. And I thought if something happens, the police would connect me to the group too much. So I decided to move. And our lease was already, it was running out. And we had two weeks to find an apartment. The only apartment was owned by a Turkish immigrant. And I will never forget, I pick up the phone of the number, <laughs> the number I found in the classifieds, pick up the phone and the guy on the other end has a Turkish accent, right? I was like, are you kidding me? The only apartment available owned by a Turk. So long story short, he lived in the house where he rented out this apartment. And I, I rented the apartment. I had no other chance, you know. But the interactions over about six months made me realize that we had so much in common. There's a famous dinner scene when we invited me for dinner. And I tried to unmask him because I thought it was one year after 9-11. I thought all Muslims are like Osama bin Laden. He will kill me in my sleep. He will. He's just a terrorist. And also unsuccess, unsuccessful unmasking him because he was just a nice guy. I expected him to serve a couscous and falafel for dinner. And he, they served chicken and fries. And I, I, and I was like, that's so normal. What happened to couscous and falafel, you know? And then I caught myself, who am I to decide what's normal for him and what's normal for me? Maybe that's normal for him. And I thought about the commonalities. And then I realized what else he had told me over the six months that I was living there, that he worried about his kids the same as I do, that he worries about his future the same as I do, and more and more of the commonalities. And at the end, there was nothing left to hate. And I was like, I cannot hate this man. It's, it's, he's just trying to make it. Hate crumbled, and I realized I have to analyze these crumbs that are sitting in front of me. And that's what I did. And I realized, okay, if this is wrong, maybe this was wrong. Maybe this was wrong. I started reading books and whatever and realized, okay, that whole ideology was wrong. And I accepted also, yes, the Holocaust happened. Uh, the Nazi ideology is not good. And I thought I was fine. I swept it under the carpet and acted like it never happened. That was 2002. After 10 years... I decided to move to the USA, childhood dream, another long story. So I made a childhood dream come true and moved to the outskirts of Memphis, Tennessee. Which is where you are now. When we come back, I want to pick up on that. T.M. Garrett, he was originally from Achim Schmidt in Germany. He was a leader in the Ku Klux Klan, Nazis. He, his, some of his racist music is still being played today, but he is on the road to becoming a Jew. He's on the way, and we'll talk about that. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. One of the most important Jewish institutions in the world today is TalkLine with Zeb Branner. He is so smart, and he is so innovative, and he has so many interesting guests. I don't know what Yiddishkeit, I don't know what New York, I don't know what the world would do without Zev. So Zev, Yashikoch, may you go from strength to strength and keep keep informing us and educating us and keep fighting for Jewish values. You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And now, here's your host. We're back. Uh, Achim Schmidt was his original name. He's now T.M. Garrett. He was a former leader in the Ku Klux Klan. Nazi movements had Nazi songs still being played to this very day. He gave it up, and now he's in the process of becoming a Jew. So 
what happened? Last time we spoke to you, you were on the lecture circuit. You were working with the Wiesenthal Center. You were fighting hate. You were doing broadcasting. You're speaking. At what point did you decide to, that you want to be part of the Jewish people? So, year 2002, that's when, when I left. Ten years, I didn't even speak about my past because it had this fear of rejection, you know. I thought when I tell anybody, again, who wants to talk to a former Nazi or a Nazi? No one, nobody. So I knew that. So I just didn't talk about it. And to the 2012, I moved to the USA, first to Memphis, Tennessee, Wonderful opportunity to get to know the black community. Memphis has a population of African American, uh, uh, Americans of 71%. So, and I realized I can't hate these people. I have way too much in common with these people to hate them, you know. I already knew I was not a racist anymore, but I discovered all these commonalities. Then, you see, I still hadn't talked about getting together with anybody who was Jewish because I just didn't have the opportunity. Um, I knew a couple in the business world, but we never talked about being Jewish or not being Jewish. That changed in 2018, and you talked about the Simon Wiesenthal Center. That's when it started. I went to uh, L.A., and, um, you know, how it is in L.A., what do you do? Hollywood, and you go to the, to, to the Pier in Santa Monica and all the fancy stuff. And somebody said you, go, you have to go to the Museum of Tolerance, which is run by the Simon Wiesenthal Center. You have to realize I never had been to a concentration camp. Like in school, that was unfortunately not enough funds. Now there's. So you you German might have, you in Germany, Germany, German kids were going to concentration camps? They some? now do. They now do, fortunately. But in your day, they weren't. Good. There was just no money. And they thought, you know, it's 30, 40 years after the liberation of Auschwitz, they were just trying to still to find their ways. What do, What do we do? With, with this education, how far can we go? What can we present and so on? When I was in the movement, I was a Holocaust denier. I didn't want to go there because I felt like, oh, somebody, somebody built this and made it look like it's real, but it's a lie. Later, when I got out of the movement after 2003, I accepted that it happened and I felt like you don't have to prove it to me anymore. I now know and believe it. So I, I, I put it away, you see that? And then I ended up in the Museum of Tolerance, and they have this Holocaust exhibit. First time being then 2018, and I was just there not even two weeks ago, and I went with them and showed it to my wife because she never had seen it. And this is really important because you walk through it. and, and You mentioned why. Was she a hater also when you met her? No, sh she's not. She's not. I met, I met her here in the U.S., after I moved here, so she, she never had anything to do with that. So that's my second wife. And uh, so I showed it to her and explained to her what, how, why this is so important for me, because you go through it, and towards the end, you walk through the Warsaw Ghetto, or they talk about the Warsaw Ghetto, and then you have these two doors for the body-abled, and then uh, the children, and, and then the, the, the women. And you walk, neither doesn't matter which door you pick you end up in the same room, which is a kind of a concrete bunker modeled after a gas chamber. And you have these, it's called the Hall of Testimonies. And the testimonies are actually the fates of a couple individuals, how they ended up in the concentration camp. And after, after I got out of this 
Hall of Testimonies in 2018. I walked out and I was like, wow. I I I miss this. I I never had reflected on my past as an antisemite until then. Not really. I just pushed it away, and I said to Rick Eaton, the senior researcher there, I said, "I have to work with you guys. I need to get to know the Jewish community." Now that was May 2018, and they do a lot with schools, campuses. School is out for summer. They had no idea what to do. They just hired a new campus director. So I got busy over the summer, and then. October 2018, Pittsburgh, Tree of Life Synagogue, 11 Jews were murdered just because they were Jewish. And this was the signal that was like, okay, TM, you're going. So I became the new, what they call the secret weapon. And I went to my first encounter other than at the Sam Wiesenthal Center with Jews, with real Jews, other than the picture I saw with the black hats, you know, at the temple wall was Northeastern University in uh, in Boston. And it was it was Hanukkah. It was one of the days of Hanukkah. So he lit a director and lit a candle. So I I didn't know much about that. But the event at the Hillel House was really there were seventy kids in there. I had no idea who was Jewish and who was not. The most Jewish thing I saw that night was kosher pizza and that was mushroom pizza. And I had no idea. I was like, I don't know anything about anything here. Two days later, my second event, also triggered by Pittsburgh, at, no, at uh, Appalachian State University in North Carolina. And we're talking about the South here. That's not Boston, okay? The South, North Carolina in the mountains. And organized by Hillel, the Simon Wiesenthal Center, and A.E. Pi. So the A.E. Pi brothers, they had a kind of a leadership dinner the night before the event, and they wanted me to come the night before and pick my brain. And this is unfortunate what happens every time, wherever I go. If there's food, I don't get to eat because everybody picks my brain, but it's fine. So and I was saying, so I sat down, and there was about 15 kids, and I knew they were Jewish. So I was looking around, and I caught myself looking who's looking Jewish. And I was like catching. Okay, wh what is looking Jewish? What is that? Did you find any black hats and the black coats there? No, no. I, okay. I found a black kid, and I was completely thrown off. And I was like, "How is this possible?" Oh, another one had red hair. And then I saw somebody with a staff, David, and I was like, "Yeah, he's he must be Jewish," you know. And I caught myself categorizing. And of course, they explained. Until then, I didn't know anything about the different movements in Judaism. I didn't know anything about who's keeping kosher, why and why not, and why whatever, and what it has to do with anything. Because I had to ask, I said, I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but what the hell happened to kosher? Because I clearly didn't eat kosher. We're talking about the South and the Southern restaurant. I was like, and they explained it to me. They said, well, some are reform, and like, and you can't find any kosher food. This is why some are vegan. So, you were eating, so where you were, there was, where you were, there was not kosher food at this Jewish event. Right, right. Um, um, so, but it was a good learning curve for me, which showed me how diverse the Jewish community is. And I was like, okay, the black kid, father was black, mother was Jewish. Oh, this is how it works, and so on. And I learned and learned and learned, and I went out of this meeting, and I was like. These are just kids. These are just normal kids. You know what I mean? And I was like, I was blown away. And no, they don't eat gefilte fish all day long, you know? <laughs> and this just was my first real encounter. And 
Then, of course, the Simon Wiesenthal Center kept sending me to mostly Jewish audiences, Jewish student groups. And I had always, no matter if it was uh, organized by Chabad, no, no matter if it was organized by an Orthodox group or a reform group or somebody was more too conservative, it doesn't matter. I always had this attraction to the community. And I was like, the welcome. That was so warm and everything. I was like, wow, this is the people are vilified the most, are opening their arms the most. And I was like, how is this possible? So over the next couple of months, Pesach is coming up, so with the same Hillel director, I uh, I had my first Hanukkah with. Uh, he invited me to his house, so I went to Pesach to his house in Worcester, in Massachusetts. That was 2019, um, and then you know summer's coming up; it's getting closer to Yom Kippur, and I'm also very active in the interfaith community. So I'm trying to bring people together, and we organized events. And I remember around this time early September, and I was asking Allison with the Simon Wiesenthal Center in, in Chicago. And I asked her, Allison, I want to know, I, I don't know about uh, about a community. I, I I have this attraction. Um, my my The, the Ju- Jewish ethics, the ethics of Judaism line up with my newfound ethics 100%. <laughs> I, this is fascinating. I learned about uh, Hanukkah. I went to Pesach to 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 the Hillary director's house. Said I need to know about Yom Kippur. What is it about? What what do Jews do there? What is happening there? Can you organize something so I can come? She was like, "TM, I'm in Chicago. I'm modern Orthodox. I don't even drive on Shabbos. <laughs> Why don't you go to Memphis to a synagogue and ask if you can tell them you want to come to Erev Yom Kippur? Kol Nitra is beautiful. Do that." I was like, Allison. You know, at the time, I didn't have any contact to, to, to the Jewish community in Memphis yet. I said, what do you want me to do? Knock at the, at the door of the synagogue and tell them, hey, I'm the former Nazi. Can I come for Yom Kippur? Well, you could have told <laughs> me you want to do tshuva. You want to do repentance, right? <laughs> yeah, but, but most likely, well, like, uh, nah. Um, so, and I was like, maybe next year. So we had this interfaith event set up just three weeks before Yom Kippur, coincidentally. And there was a rabbi that I never seen from Memphis. And I was like, this is my chance. And I remember I introduced myself as the, I was the MC at the event and as an interfaith activist and speaker against hate of the Simon Wiesenthal Center. And he gave me his card and I told him I wanted to come to Yom Kippur. I said, yeah, let's talk. And I remember I'm going home and I realized, oops, there's something important I haven't told him <laughs> about my past. So I text him. I get a phone, text him. said, you may want to look me up on Wikipedia on my website. And it was still cool. Good. And that was Tuesday. I remember it. Nothing came back. No, I, I was like, okay, I knew it. It's a rabbi. The people are vilified the most. And it's a rabbi. He will turn his back on me. I knew it. There we go. There's the rejection I was afraid of. Wednesday, nothing. Thursday morning, nothing. Thursday night, he finally replies and says literally, okay, you can come. I'm looking forward to learning you. That was his words. I learned later that he emailed the Simon Wiesenthal Center checking me out, and they replied to him, yet he is kosher. So I got the official kosher stamp by the Simon Wiesenthal Center. And by the way, you mentioned the people who revolved, you revolved the most, the ones the most acceptable. We just had on... Last week, a Palestinian brother and sister who grew up hating Jews ended up going to Israel, 
and they, they, they love the embrace of the Jewish community. So they just converted five weeks ago. So let's, oh, wow. let's pick up the pace. Muscle tough to them. Yes, uh, and, but they're unfortunate. For, they're suffering persecution from the Palestinian oh. Authority and Muslims in Israel were trying to help them out. But your story, to accelerate the pace, so what happened? So you liked, you know, you liked, the, did you like the kosher food or you didn't have it too much yet? So, <laughs> so that wasn't, was that a fact? So what, what was the fact? We're that, not there. That's a little... It's it's a journey, like like I think guess being a Jew is a journey, you know. But <laughs> so uh, I went to Kolnidra. I went to every film people, of course, because I wanted to see Kolnidra and everything. And I remember going to this. It was a small synagogue, small conservative synagogue, a very small one. Uh, though Memphis has a nice Jewish population population of about ten thousand, and. Anyway, but I went there, very warm welcome again. Everybody knew who I was, and nobody really cared or said anything anything bad. And you, and come, remember, and you come with the tattoos, right, on your arm? and Yeah, but I, I don't have any hate tattoos anymore. They are, they are gone. But I had, I had a suit jacket on, a suit jacket, and the first time wearing a kippah, okay? It was, this is, this is mine that I wear now. So it was a white one that I got at the at the door. So I got it at the door and I got a transliteration. Uh, that looks that for Saturday mornings, but it looks a little bit like. Uh, can we go there? Nah. Okay. And not what really, is... it's not, here we go. Here, oh, here, here, okay. Uh -huh. This is for Shabbat morning. Anyway, so I knew I could. I had the transliteration and I could pray. At least I tried. Um, so after the service, somebody walks up, asks me what's an anti-Semitism in Germany. And, you know, I keep telling, I think Germany has done a great job and so on and so on and so on. I don't think you have to be afraid of Germans anymore. The next day, and that was Yom Kippur 2019, when I turned my phone on the next, the next day, I saw on the news that a German neo-Nazi had attacked a synagogue in Halle, Germany. And I was like, oh, my God, what, what, have I to what have I told these people last night? I felt like a liar. But something else happened, too. Something, a feeling crawl, crawled up my back and my neck. And I reflected on the night before. And I was like, I was sitting in there wearing a kippah. I was praying in Hebrew. If somebody would have entered the synagogue violently to murder the people inside or to hurt them because of a Jewish, I would have been dead. I would have been one of the victims because I looked like a Jew and I prayed like a Jew. And that was a game changer. For the very first time, I knew how it feels not to feel safe because you belong to a minority community, in this case, the Jewish community. You know, until then, I always told my people when, when something happened to the black community, I picked up the phone, are you okay and whatever. To the Muslim community, Christchurch, I picked up the phone, are you guys okay when... When um, Pittsburgh happened, I, I called the, the, the newfound Jewish friends I had and asked them, are you guys okay? But I never could walk in their shoes. I never felt how it feels. And this had changed. All of a sudden, I felt unsafe. I felt numb. And I felt helpless. And this was a big problem because I still went on and went to synagogues. Um, not only with the Sam Lubisenthal Center, also with other groups like Stand With Us I'm working with now and other groups, and also Hillel and Pi, whoever was organizing it, or Camera, and went there and always told my story, and it was powerful, the story of change. 
And always I told them with compassion, we can do this with, com with compassion, the love that changed me, this is how we can do it. But then I felt all of a sudden just as numb and helpless as the people I was talking to at these events. And I had a real problem for about three, four months. And it's funny, it was not even a week before we two met the first time in your studio. Um, I remember it was Mozart Chavez, it was uh, uh, Saturday night, and I, four days prior to that in Chicago, I was talking at a small event led by a Chabad rabbi. And that rabbi asked me if he can tell a little story. And th this story is really important. It was about a young woman at Michigan State University. And there was a time when all these attacks happened by the black Hebrew Israelites in New Jersey. It was that time. It was all over the news. And the young woman moved in the dorm at the university and put a mezuzah up. First, she was like a little hesitant. Should I do it? I don't know. But she put the mezuzah up. And of course, you know how it goes. It got stolen. And she was like, oh, my God. Was this intentional or not? Was this personal or not? Was this anti-Semitic? What was this? Police fortunately could find the perpetrator that had cameras. It was a student on campus. And they asked the young woman, hey, we found him. You know, do you want to press charges? Because did something anti-Semitic must be an anti-Semite, right? Walks like a duck, looks like a duck, walks like a duck. And she was like, uh, no. And they were like, what? Like, everybody put that young man already in the box, must be a Nazi, must be an anti-Semite, because did something anti-Semitic. No, I, I want to talk to him. I want to know why he did it. And they sat down, I believe, somebody from the ADL and the Chabad rabbi and somebody from Stanford, I believe. I know. And anyways, the, so they talked, and they found out that the young man didn't know what he was doing. Not really. He just hurt her personally with that, and, and he found out the whole extent of his, of his wrongdoing, what, what, what it affected. And he actually apologized and gave her the money for Numa Zusa and agreed to tour the Holocaust Museum. So what happened again? She did not press charges, but sat down and wanted to talk to him. And whenever something like this happens, like me with my anti-Semitic jokes when I was in this box, Nazi kid, or this young man must be a Nazi too, or an anti-Semite. This is when we have access to those people. There's a short amount of time where they're vulnerable in these boxes whenever something like that happens. And we have the choice of two things, what we can do. The one thing is we can leave them in that box and put them on a shelf and wait until the Nazis are coming and take the, sh the box out. And they're happy about it that we put the box there for them. And the, the human being could breed in there. They put them out and radicalize them further. Or we do what a young woman did. She opened the box, saw a human being inside, pulled him out, put him back on track. And maybe that young woman had saved that young man from becoming the next synagogue shooter. T.M. Garrett is our guest, uh, former head of KKK, Nazi. He's now working with the Wiesenthal Center. Stand by us. Stand with us. He's in the process of converting to Judaism. It's the award-winning radio program. Are you interested in hosting your own radio show and podcast, or perhaps a TV program? Talkline Network can help you get on the air from one hour weekly to 24 hours a day. 
ideal for ethnic, foreign language, medical, business, and religious broadcasting. We also have full-time radio stations for lease, as well as FMHD channels. For more information, please call 212-769-1925. That's 212-769-1925. Or email zevrenner at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You're listening to Talk Line with Zev Brenner, America's premier Jewish broadcast on the air since 1981. And now, here's your host. T.M. Garrett is our guest, former Nazi, former skinhead, head leader KKK, now in the process of becoming Jew. Let's see if we can squeeze in one phone call. Let's go to Arya and Flappers, your question for our guest. Yes, I, I was just want to have a comment. Is that okay, a comment? Sure, go right ahead, yes. Yes, I was I was very very impressed with your presentation, and I just want to pass something on to you, uh, which I actually, as a Jew, I experienced as as a, as a revival of my Judaism. Okay, a, a renewal, and basically what you experienced in that synagogue with your feeling of vulnerability, um, pr- perhaps unbeknownst to you, was the authentic feeling of being a Jew, because being a Jew. We don't assert our power physically. We assert our power spiritually and let God do the fighting for us. The image, the image of this awesome uh, IDF, Israeli Defense Force, that wins all the wars, okay? This is a miss. This is really a, a miscast image, okay? The reason Israel is successful is because God is behind them. They're not, they're not really as awesome as they appear to be. Well, and if God's protecting we, them, then they're all awesome. Okay. Okay, but I just want to convey to him that that feeling of vulnerability is the authentic feeling. A Jew is supposed to feel that uh, when, when he goes up against the Goyim, and he just turns to God and follows the Torah. Our task I, is to we follow got that point where the Torah. The clock is ticking. Thank you for your phone. We appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Um, we have a few moments left, so let's look at what happens. So here you are, you like, you feel that spirit. So what what propelled you to take the final step to become to become Jewish? So uh, I'm trying to wrap this up, and at the end I will have one story which is super important. But like you said, these feelings, like the, what I felt in the synagogue, the vulnerability. Um, again, the, the the connection to the Jewish people, the community, the ethics that are lined up with my newfound ethics, and then religion, of course. Um, I was baptized uh, Catholic, but never really pro- uh, never really practicing. Like I went to church because I wanted my presents for Christmas; otherwise, I wouldn't get any. Um, I got my confirmation because otherwise, grandmother would have been disappointed, you know, and these things. And that's that's as far as I went. And then so, unfortunately, the, the clock is ticking. So, what was the catalyst? So, here you are. You had these experiences. What pushed you to say, "I'm coming to you"? And how are you going? You're in the process. So, where are you right now? Right now, I'm learning Hebrew, the reading. Of course, it's all I tell my rabbi all the time. Look, the other. Other kids that had 13 years to learn that. <laughs> He's telling me, oh, next week you come back and you can learn, you can read Hebrew. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm there. I'm and there. who are you I'm, studying I'm with? Studying who, are you study, who are you studying with? With with my rabbi. It's Rabbi Cantor, David Julian. He's a, a rabbi of the synagogue. 
and um, we're we're working together. And that's, a con- that's a conservative synagogue out in Memphis. It is. It is. Did Correct. you consider going Orthodox? Um, the thing is, uh, the circumstances, the living circumstances, that just doesn't make it possible at, at the moment. Uh, I say never, never. Um, this is as far as I can go right now. People have asked me, why don't you do reform? But I'm just like, okay, look, if you're born a Jew, you're a Jew. You know what I mean? But I'm converting, so I, I I wouldn't feel Jewish enough if I if I would go reform. Uh, I'm not judging reform converts or reform Jews. I have many many friends there, but for me personally, I just wouldn't feel Jewish enough. Because a conservative is right in the middle, but Orthodox is certainly the more most traditional. You know Correct. that in order, if you want to go to Israel, at least live as a Jew there, you would require an Orthodox conversion. That's why Correct. I ask you if you consider doing the full thing. Isn't there a Chabad nearby where you are? Um, there is a Chabad as well. But again, the, the living circumstance right now just doesn't make it possible. Um, I'm, I was just lying to myself. So I'm, I'm doing what I can do to be clear with my conscience, with my conscience, also with the conscience to God. This is what I can do under the circumstances. If they change, then we will see where it goes. Um, but this is what it is at the moment. And uh, for me, at, at the moment, that is, since it's all I can do, it must be good enough. I could wait, but I feel I can't wait. Because, well, you're saying the um, question will ultimately, will you go through the full... Right. Conversion. Possibly, possibly. Uh, we have a few moments um, left. Did, what's been the reaction to your neo-Nazi, your Nazi, your KKK, your family to A, to your renouncing Nazis, and also you're becoming a Jew? Not only have you renounced it, you're joining the enemy, so to speak. Uh, correct. I mean, I haven't gotten any response to that yet. Uh, um, I, it's out there. People know about it. Um, but I, I usually don't make myself a target anyway because I don't need to call out people. I don't need to snitch. I tell people when they leave the movement, I help others leave these environments too. They can come to me and I help them. I give them a helping hand that I didn't have back then. And I tell them, don't make yourself a target. You don't need to turn over a list of members to the FBI. Believe me, the FBI knows them already. They know everything. So we don't need to do this. If you have been a victim, uh, um, witness of a crime you need to tell it otherwise don't become a snitch don't make me make yourself an enemy unfortunately we have about um, 60 seconds do you have a hebrew name that you use um, well Achim. Achim, okay and i don't need to pick one i was Achim. born with one okay Achim, one the brother and brother tm so you had we have about a minute left you had a story you wanted to share with us as we close down we have to do that at another time. It will take too long. It is just really important for everybody. Don't dehumanize people. This is why the Nazis were successful, that neighbors turned against their Jewish German brothers and turned them in because they were successful in dehumanizing. Humanize people. Love and compassion. Achim, TM, Gary, we appreciate you being here with us. I know it's hard. You have a long. You had a long journey. You still have a journey to go. You're in the process of becoming a Jew. We look forward to having you back again. And thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For continuous Jewish programs, HawklineNetwork.com or our 24-hour-a-day listen line at 641-741-0389. For past shows, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, YouTube, Instagram, and all major podcast platforms or JewishPodcast.org. Thanks for listening to the TalkLineNetwork.com.
TalkLine Network Radio, America's longest-running Jewish broadcast network, the voice of the Jewish community.